If you've ever been in Naptown, known to the rest of the world as Indianapolis, or Indy for short, you probably noticed a funk that follows a heavy rain coming from Fall Creek. I know that funk pretty well. Me and that smell have been acquainted since I could pour my own bowl of cereal. I grew up in Hallville, a black neighborhood on Indy's west side known for Long's Donuts, being an earshot of the roars of the Indy 500, and way too close for comfort to coal plants. Context on my stomping grounds aside, I used to take drives along Fall Creek from the west side to the east side as a kid, and even until today. And after a heavy rain on those drives, the funk of Fall Creek greeted me, and my face would twist in disgust. I remember being 11 years old, a young buck curious about the world I grew up in, and still getting smacked around by that terrible smell. I decided it was time for me and this smell to become way more than acquaintances, maybe even friends or at the very least, worthy adversaries. So, my mentors and master teachers, M. Hotepadisa and Paulette Fair, two of Indianapolis's brightest minds and co-founders of Kepra Institute, took me and a group of kids from the neighborhood on a summer camp field trip to the water treatment facility so that me and my fellow constituents could all get to know our old foe, the funk of Fall Creek. When we got there, we questioned an almost all-white crew about the water that coursed through our neighborhood. What happens to the water we use every day? Where does it go? And why does Fall Creek smell like sewage? It's because it was. Andy didn't show love to its waterways. It abused them. Humankind, fish, and fauna alike all swim in contaminated and or chemically bathed water. As kids, we learned that the smell that came from Fall Creek was part of a deeper story, a story to flawed human decisions that bend nature to serve its own needs. But to know a story is to know its roots, and to know its roots opens the possibility to new chapters. This is Stories from Home, Moving the Just Transition, and I'm your host, Keenan Rhodes. If the power's with the people, then the people must be bold. Fight to liberate the soil while we liberate our souls. Liberate the resource. Change the story that's been told. We We came here in birth. Started that first day not knowing who we are. We were infants. Didn't know how to move our arms and our legs. That second day we went further and grew a little bit more. We became young people, young children, still kind of awkward. The third day, if you notice, some things started coming together. We became adults yesterday, and we know how it is to be an adult. We have to be responsible, and there's anger and laughter. There's all those aspects of life. And today, a lot of good things came together. We're leaving here as elders with the message. That was Tom Goldtooth, the executive director of the Indigenous Environmental Network, speaking at the closing of the first National People of Color Environmental Leadership Summit in October 1991 in Washington, D.C. It's been 30 years since that meeting. You might remember Tom from last season, where he talked about mutual aid and taking care of our communities at the height of the COVID-19 pandemic. The first National POC Environmental Leadership Summit was pivotal for environmental justice, 
or EJ for short, establishing guiding principles of the movement, which include things like universal protection from nuclear testing, toxic wastes and poisons, a right to clean land, air and water, and political, economic, cultural and environmental self-determination of all peoples. Those are just a few examples of the principles of the EJ movement that guide the work we do today. This EJ summit was a precursor to the existence of the Climate Justice Alliance, also known as CJA. Other CJA members, including folks like the Asian Pacific Environmental Network's Mia Yoshitani, when she was just a student leader, were there as well. The summit was ambitious, joining 300 African, Latino, Native, and Asian Americans from across the United States, as well as global delegates, to share experiences of how industry growth and pollution disconnect and damage our relationship with Mama Earth, and how communities of color bear the brunt of the impact of the culture of extraction we all live in. There's going to be a new environmental movement in the United States of America. It brought many movement leaders together, but it was not the beginning of the work. No, it was work of organizing and activism that was years in the making and finally made manifest. You know, our folks have been fighting what we would now call environmental racism coming out of that movement, which, which you know, developed in North Carolina and then spread you know, throughout the Deep South. That was Kali Akuna speaking to me from his backyard in Jackson, Mississippi. You can peep the birds co-signing him. Louisiana and Cancer Alley and, and the connections that folks wind up, you know, actually building, you know, uh, a regional and national organization on the basis of that work, you know, in the 80s and 90s, right? Our folks have always been fighting that. You know, if you look at some of the, the, the big struggles in Harlem going back to the 1920s, you know, folks fighting against slums, folks fighting against infestation, fighting against, you know, the, the, the chemical dumping poor air quality, it, that, those things have always been around, you know, where, where we've been confronted. What I think was what that movement did in particular and what that struggle brought into clear focus was our own comprehensive analysis, right, of environmental racism, what it is, to put it in clear terms so it wouldn't just be kind of cast off or cast aside, but spoke to the specificity of how the system is exploiting and damaging and harming our people very intentionally. I am uh, the founder and a co-founder, let me be clear, co-founder, co-director of Cooperation Jackson, based out of Jackson, Mississippi. Even though we are seven years old and have a few co-ops, you know, developed in the community land trust, we still view ourselves as an emerging vehicle for the development of economic democracy and the broader social transformation of our home community first and foremost, Jackson, Mississippi, the Deep South, and from there, the rest of the U.S. empire and the world, you know, just trying to play our part, be it developing sound practice to the best extent possible, creating new models and propagating, you know, ideas to help inspire others. Kali is a scholar of history and social revolutions. When I asked about Co-op Jackson's roots, he cited W.E.B. Du Bois's work around Black cooperative economy, the Revolutionary Action Movement, national liberation, anti-imperialist movements of the 1940s, the liberation movements in Africa, and across all of those movements that he mentioned, the core value is this. 
some aspiration towards a collective um, upliftment rather than kind of a, a continuation of capitalist development and orientation uh, with the expropriation of, of the people's collective wealth by a small group of people, right? We were, were always looking to avoid that understanding how that played out uh, in our own history, in our own context, and particularly us being people of African descent, recognizing that, that you know, it's essential for us to be anti-capitalist because at one point in time, we were capital. You know, the direct instruments of the capitalist class, in this case, the, the Southern planter class, slaveocracy class, you know, we were tools like a horse or, or a hammer. But we have to go back even further when we talk about environmental racism. Here's Elizabeth, who leads Uprose, Brooklyn's oldest Latino community-based organization in New York. Yes, it was founded during the Civil Rights Movement in 1966. It was the year of Black Power. It was the year of the, of the, of the, the Black Panthers, the Young Lords, everything that gave birth to who we are and what we can do today to, to shift power was happening in 1966. <laughs> and Uprose was funded in 96, uh, was founded in 1966. It was a, it was a year where a lot of organizations that, that served our community were popping up all over New York City. And so when I came in, you know, 30 years later uh, in 1996, uh, uh, it was faced with, they were defunding it, a lot of organizations were disappearing. They had been um, they had been defunded, and what was happening was that a whole lot of um, empire building kind of social justice they called themselves social justice organizations were coming into our communities. They were just really uh, people who were coming in who had studied and had a vision of what they wanted to do in other people's communities, and because they were coming in with so many resources, they were wiping out these grassroots organizations. And so a lot of them, a lot of them disappeared. And so I was asked to come in to save Uprose, to prevent it from disappearing. And uh, I was told that it was the oldest Puerto Rican organization in Brooklyn. And that was basically all I needed to know. I think that environmental racism uh, really begins in the slave quarters. I think it begins with the extraction of our land and our labor. It begins with our uh, descendants, our ancestors not having access to good food, to lands where they could grow it, uh, to clean water. Uh, and then when you, when you trace the history of African-Americans in this country, you find out that um, once they were able to gain freedom, and build their own societies that those communities, like you find in places like Port Arthur, Texas, are then surrounded by petrochemical industries, right? That all of the heavy polluting industry is put in our communities, but it serves privileged communities. So there's like literally a connection to the beginning, to how we were colonized, how our land was mined, how it was extracted to where we are right now today with climate change. Last season, we shared the heart of climate justice communities across the United States through their own storytelling and art. They showed what it means to navigate a just transition from the extractive and resource-greedy economy of today into a world that values our relationships with each other and with our planet. This season, we're going back to the basics through conversations with leaders of all ages doing the work. What is climate justice? And where is climate justice today? COP26, 
the UN's annual global conference on climate change was recently held. Even as movement leaders have grown to be elders, is the movement itself an infant? Did we grow up? We know it's not enough to just talk about the important histories, which we will continue to do. But to show you what it's like to embody climate justice, to be in right relationship with each other and our entire ecosystem, that touches on all aspects of society, political life, the way we grow and consume our food, the way we conceptualize justice, the way we build roads and cities, and the way we interact with one another. The first documented use of the phrase environmental racism was in 1982 by civil rights leader Dr. Benjamin Franklin Chavez Jr. when he was arrested by police, supposedly for driving too slowly. He was the one you heard earlier saying, there's going to be a new environmental justice movement in America at the 1991 summit. He was a key organizer of a protest by the primarily black residents of Warren County, North Carolina. They opposed a dumping site for toxic plastic waste that was going to spill contaminated soil into their neighborhoods. This grassroots organizing effort was led by many who had been intimately involved in the civil rights movement. They understood the cause and impact of environmental racism and applied pressure. This struggle led to a standoff with the police, resulting in many arrests. And although they might have lost this one fight, organizing continued and led to a growing number of communities demanding environmental justice. The term environmental racism, for those who grow up experiencing it, is just a term that organizes what we intuitively know in our bodies. So I remember just just like my own history, directly kind of appropriating that term and finding it like this, this summarizes what I experienced and what I grew up with in, in a way that was more profound than just saying my, my community is polluted. Because just saying it's polluted doesn't speak to the intentionality of why it pollu was polluted, who polluted it, and to what end. Climate justice was born out of the movement for environmental justice, which came from identifying environmental racism. For some, these are just vocab terms that roll off the tongue and out of memory. But for others, it's a lived experience. Take Inksa Angeles, for example, a youth organizer at Poder, a grassroots environmental justice organization based in San Francisco's Mission District. My family has always been a big support and a big encourager of me opening my eyes to the world. And of course, you know, being a young brown girl, a young indigenous girl, your eyes open up very quickly to the injustices that we see, you know, in school and all around us. Um, some of those early conversations, ooh, there were conversations about mental health that I had. There were conversations about like indigenous sovereignty and like land sovereignty that I would talk about in my home. And, you know, we didn't use that kind of vocabulary, you know, like indigenous sovereignty and like health, uh, the healthcare system and like all those things. Nonetheless, like even in the languages that we spoke about it in at home, like what, what you could call like talking shit or like, yeah, like talking shit about the system, that was radical and that was revolutionary. And that's what fueled um, like my love and my passion for my community. The language of environmental justice came later through her work at Poder, which stands for People Organizing to Demand Environmental and Economic Justice. You know, that vocabulary about injustice really 
came to me um, through Poder. When I was 14 years old, I started to put pieces together and put the language together. Like, oh, these are this is environmental injustice. This is environmental racism. This is classism. This is racism. This is sexism. This is patriarchy. You know, these are all things that we want to dismantle. Um, but at a young age, for me, that was like, you know, going to the community garden and getting my hands in the in the earth was was decolonizing my health going being in school and questioning what our history teachers were teaching us was was the the radical and the revolutionary within me you know like questioning that eurocentric the eurocentric idea ideas that we have in our schooling system helping out others during recess like having low counseling sessions was my radical self-care and my community mutual aid as well as like me debunking the our our healthcare system and our mental our mental health ideologies, which are hella Western, by the way. So things like that led to me becoming and being interested in being a youth organizer, which I think I've always been, you know, I think I've always been a youth organizer just without the title. The work of climate justice is so deeply related to our relationships, including our relationship with Mama Earth. We are reflections of, of the land um, in many ways. And the land is a reflection of us. So uh, I've used this uh, analogy before, but, you know, like the way that we treat our land is the way that we treat uh, our women. The way that we exploit our land is the way that we exploit labor and exploit people, you know. So there's a lot of there's a lot of um, connections between how we function and how the earth functions. My principles and my morals are definitely guided by um, my my indigenous ancestry and my indigenous roots, which I am very, very blessed to have a connection to, you know, have that history attached to who I am. I remember my mom as a child saying that you always have to give back to the earth whatever you take from the earth because the earth is here to take care of us and we need to be able to be in this relationship with it that honors the earth. With the opening of the Zapatista liberation movement and the model that they were creating, which had a profoundly kind of different orientation, which honestly took us you know, a couple of years to really fully digest and understand uh, and all this complexity. But we learned a profound number of things about how to relate on a deeper level to the earth, what our responsibility is to the environment and putting you know, relationships with the earth kind of over and above just blanket uh, aspirations for, for kind of flag uh, uh, liberation in the form of control of the state or a nation state. It's key to note that environmental justice grew out of a need that environmentalism wasn't serving. Early on, it was clear that uh, the conservation movement, that these organizations were all led by white people with deep privilege who, uh, who thought open spaces and things like birds were more important than our people. And that, um, you know, we even had a fight um, when we were trying to get the uh, park for, for our young people. We had, they had no places to play baseball. They had no places to exercise. And a good number of our young people had um, asthma and, and obesity. And, uh, and so after we are able to get the commitment to get the space to develop into a park, the Audubon Society showed up and wanted to take the park 
just so that it could be a preserve for birds. Oh my God, you should have seen the young people. Uh, it was so the lives of the birds make have more value. Uh, than our lives. And it was clearly the difference between being an environmentalist in the traditional sense and being an environmental justice activist. And what we settled on was that part of the space would be set apart so that the community could get engaged in bird watching. Um, and then the rest of it would be available to the community. So there was a compromise that I thought made sense. And that also uh, introduced, uh, you know, are people who are in a densely populated urban, deeply urban environment to the natural world. So everybody benefited, but they came in heavy footed, uh, wanting to take uh, something that we had made possible for the community. And even their approach, their, their um, acting as of somehow their priorities were more important, you know, were rooted in white supremacy um, and determining what our priorities were, should be, uh, how that land needed to be developed, that was, that was you know, white supremacy. Um, and we thought, well, wait a minute, let's figure this out because we might be able to do both of these things, give young people access to open space and at the same time retain uh, part of the space so that they can also engage in, um, in the natural environment. So it was, it was I, think, I think it was a good compromise, but how they approached us and how they determined what the priorities were and how they used their resources came from a very different space. They weren't thinking about, they were trying to tell us what was in our best interest. And so that's always been a tension uh, and continues to be a tension, although that's changing, uh, between environmental justice activists and, and environmentalists. The need for our movements to exist is a global legacy of white supremacy and colonialism. You know, all of us are connected to each other in all these different relationships, you know, symbiotic relationships, just like Mama Earth is connected through symbiotic relationships. And um, when we treat each other well, when we love on each other, when we show community to each other, you know, um, it's evidence and it's proof that we can do the same to Mama Earth. We are one in the same, you know, we, we need to coexist on this planet and finding our way back to, um, not, not, you know, not actually not finding our way back to, but moving towards the future in, in um, a way that's regenerative um, means decolonizing the way that we that we look at the earth and we look at the land just as much as it means decolonizing the way that we treat each other and look at each other and coexist with each other we're we're one in the same for sure and uh i think that what's really beautiful is that people are starting to see that people are starting to feel that like that deep-rooted sense of um, healing, that call to um, to be regenerative with ourselves. We need to be regenerative with, with the land and with all living things. About nine years ago, many of the people who were around for the beginnings of the EJ movement came together and formed the Climate Justice Alliance as a strategic alignment where they could increase their impact and collectively lead us into the future through a just transition. 
In contrast to the top-down approach of the mainstream environmental movement, these people committed to keeping the grassroots and their solutions front and center in the work we do. CJA members are building and living into a new world and way of being, creating solutions right in their own backyards. Kids are growing vegetables in their own neighborhoods and eating fresh food that they grew. Communities are pulling together their own collective thought and resources to stop pollution at its source, and folks are organizing themselves into worker-owned cooperatives and spreading the wealth amongst each other. And even folks are redefining what wealth means in their communities. We'll end on this story from Kali, whose consciousness developed at an early age through a family practice that showed him how common this narrative that many humans live into impacts other animals and beings. The narrative is speciesism. More commonly put, humans are superior to other animals. You know, I, I came to the conclusion very consciously and deliberately. I mean, I grew up in a very political, politicized environment with, with activists and, and revolutionaries you know, uh, being part of revolutionary movement directly in my, my family. It's a parable, really, for climate today, and asks us to reflect to what systems are we contributing or perpetuating? And it's a reminder of how very intersectional our approach should be. So most of our meat uh, came from this chicken farm, you know, that, that she had grown in the backyard. And so I was always tasked at that age, you know, early three, four years old, I was the best chicken catcher in the family, right? I, I developed that skill. And I love doing it. Uh, but I don't think it was until I was like five years old that I recognized fully and claimed to understand, like, every time I catch a chicken, we eat that chicken. And I was like, I don't want to catch chickens no more because, uh, you know, uh, I'm doing damage to the chickens. And I consider them my friends. You know, I used to feed them and talk to them and do all that kind of stuff. So I was like, no, 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 no. You know, we need to stop eating meat and, you know, the, uh, I had that consciousness kind of very early on now that I didn't stick with it uh, uh, all of my life. But, you know, that those things were very formative to me as a process of developing consciousness that never really went away and has always been uh, a particular part of my conscious framing activism, you know, as long as I can remember. What made me realize it was my grandmother, I caught one. She held it. She was like, you have age now. You need to do the full job. So she made me, you know, wrangle the chicken's neck and then cut it off. And I was like, wait a minute. This is what I've been contributing to this whole time? <laughs> Thanks for tuning in. This is Stories from Home, Moving the Just Transition. Next episode, we'll talk about false solutions. Most of the nation states are out there promoting are basically false solutions, right? Just things that uh, we'll have, at best, cosmetic change, uh, but don't get at the heart of, of the problem. And meet climate justice leaders in Newark, New Jersey, and Richmond, California. Until next time. Stories from Home, Moving the Just Transition is a production of the Climate Justice Alliance, featuring me, your host and producer, Keenan Rhodes, story editors and producers, Jessica Zhao and Olivia Burlingame and sound editing by Elijah Pogues, and music by Monica Atkins, a.k.a. Surreal. The title of the track is Love Black Warrior. To learn more about the Climate Justice Alliance, visit climatejusticealliance.org and check us out on all our social platforms at CJA Our Power. 
If the power's with the people, then the people must be bold. Fight to liberate the soil while we liberate our souls. Liberate the resource. Change the story that's been told.